The views expressed in our podcast do not represent the views of all sorority organizations. You might even hear different viewpoints among MJ sorority team members featured. Real Talk intends to foster open dialogue about issues we see across the country that affect real women. And beyond these thoughts and recommendations, we would ultimately refer you back to local, state, and federal authorities, as well as your own sorority's rules and policies. While we intend to keep content light and informative, there may be insurance claims discussed that involve bodily injury and personal damage of a sensitive nature. Be aware that topics may be a bit graphic and even emotionally charged. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, this is Sarah with MJ Sorority. We have something a little different for you today. This is a conversation from our Housing Forum on the Road series, which is a series of webinars geared towards the property leadership of each of our client organizations. But we felt like this conversation was important enough to everyone and a practical use to all clients that we wanted to make it available for everyone via the podcast. So here is our conversation about emotional support animals. As always, contact us at Real Talk at MJ Sorority with your questions and suggestions. Thanks for listening. Thanks to all of you for joining us for MJ Housing Forum on the Road. Um, I know this is a concept that we tried a couple of years ago and it's just really seemed to make sense and fit um, now that we are returning from COVID and hopefully we can use this training opportunity to um, reach more people and reach more people more of the time. So I think this is just the second one and we're looking forward to any feedback that you have about topics or questions or ways that we can make this better as we improve. But today we are talking about almost everybody's favorite topic, um, although I might say that every time, emotional support animals and service animals, because we certainly do get questions about that. And I know that all of you do too. There are definitely more questions than there are answers. Um, as we move forward, um, please, if you have any questions, go ahead and tap them, just put them right in the chat function. Um, Sarah Sterley, who I think most of you all know, is on and she'll be watching for questions and she'll either jump in and moderate as we go along or we'll hold them to the end wherever they seem appropriate to make sure that all of those get answered. Also, just so you know, we we are recording this session and it will be posted at the end of the by the end of the day today. If you want to share else, um, any of your colleagues that weren't able to join us today. So, with that, let's jump in. Um, I'm going to get started with just some um, lead up and some of the research that we've done, and then. Kat Cobb from Gamma Phi Beta and Ashley Coleman and Lucy Moreland from Tri-Delta have all been gracious enough to join us and talk about their process um, with emotional support animals and how they've worked through it with some of their groups. So just to get, just to get started in case um, anybody is relatively new to this topic, really we have two categories of animals that we hear about, the emotional support animals, which is just what it sounds like. It's an emotional support and emotional support um, and they provide companionship. Um, and then the other category, that's under the Fair Housing Act. The other category is a service animal, and those are defined under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And those are specifically a dog, a miniature horse, strangely enough, um, that have been individually trained to do work or, or perform specific tasks that will help um, an, a person with 
with the individual with a disability. Um, and for that one, the person with that disability does need to show that the task that the animal can do does directly rate, um, relate and alleviate symptoms or um, concerns that that person carries around on a day-to-day -day basis. So going forward, um, just because service animals is under ADA, I do want to remind everybody that ADA does not actually apply to sorority houses because they are not public accommodation. However, that's a federal law. However, there may be state and local laws that are broader and have specifically as they have intended to bring you back in. So when you have these come up, you will want to somehow look into those local and state laws. Under the ADA, there's only a limited, um, really both of these categories, but the, there are limited questions on what you can ask when you're trying to get to the bottom of this. Is the dog a service animal because of a disability? And what work or task has the dog been trained to perform? Unfortunately, allergies, for some of the other members who may also be facing concerns, allergies and fear of dogs from other members are not valid reasons for denying access. So it's important to try to balance those conflicting interests um, to accommodate, if at all possible. The service animal can be asked to remove from the only if the dog is out of control or not housebroken. Um, it's important that whoever does own that service animal have absolute control of the animal at all times. Um, and then there are some other exceptions, such as service animals must be allowed in areas that prepare food, even if animals otherwise wouldn't be able to. Um, and um, while you can't charge an upfront pet fee or pet deposit like um, many apartments or hotels do um, for just pets, you can charge for the damage that might result from an animal that's out of control or has done damage. Then I just have a link there for just a lot of that information comes straight from the ADA. And so if you wanted source documents, um, there's a good one to go to um, for some of that information. So now we're into um, emotional, really talking more about emotional support animals. Um, first of all, Fair Housing Act doesn't even apply to us. So there, this is something that reasonable attorneys can get into um, very intense discussions on. Um, I know because I've been in a couple of those, um, but the Fair Housing Act covers most housing. However, according to the HUD website, um, private clubs may that that only that limit their occupancy only to private members may be exempt. That can be good news for us um, because it does allow us some wiggle room. Um, if we need to, if we're finding that it's going to be difficult. Um, per a legal opinion that's been obtained by MJ Sorority and in talking to some of our clients, they have also received the same advice that while FHA does not limit the private organization and whom they select to be their members and therefore who is eligible to live in the house, once that class of members has been selected, the FHA rights should be allowed to those persons, which would include allowing them an emotional support animal if they can show that they need it. Um, again, just like with the ADA, however, though, FHA um, is a federal law and there may be local and state laws that also define it and would change those requirements um, and make it re make you required to go through it. Otherwise, um, you may want, you still want, may want to as a courtesy to your members, both under, both for service animals and for emotional support animals, um, in order to provide the best possible experience for your members. 
and we'll talk about this over and over again, this comes back to um, your risk management policies and guidelines and how you and how you consider things. What is your risk tolerance? Getting, digging just a little bit deeper into the emotional support animal, um, it's recognized as a reasonable accommodation for a person with a disability under the Federal Fair Housing Act. It is not a pet. Similar to ADA, the um, HUD, the Housing um, and Urban Development, which control, which is the governing body um, that oversees the Fair Housing Act, requires two questions. Does the person seeking to use and live with the animal have a disability? For example, a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits um, one or more major life activities. And two, as a separate question, does the person making the request have a disability-related need for an assistance animal? In other words, does the animal work, provide assistance, perform tasks or services for the benefit of a person with disability, even if that's not a specific task, but more one of companionship? If the answer is no to either of those questions, then that's the end of the conversation. You do not have to con continue to have a conversation to find a reasonable accommodation. Um, yes, needs to be the answer to both of those questions before you have any responsibility to continue um, to look for that um, reasonable accommodation. So once we're here, so we have, we've just, Assume that we've gotten through those first two questions, um, the reasonable accommodation, just some, again, some more background. Again, this is not in violation of your no pets rule. I know that we have recommended and we know that most of you have in your housing agreements that pets are not allowed. This does not create an exception to that rule that would just open it up to any pets once you allow. They're no longer considered a pet under, um, under that um, provision. The, it is important that the requests for assistance animals are evaluated on a case-by-case -case basis following a request from the resident. And the person must provide documentation or you can request they provide documentation if a disability is not known or readily apparent. Obviously, if somebody um, shows up who is blind and uses a, a, um, a seeing eye dog, it's obvious. You probably don't need to ask anymore. You don't need to provide any more document requesting more documentation for them from them in those cases those dogs are typically very well behaved and likely present less of a concern um, from a housing standpoint however with emotional support animals it's typically not so obvious um, and so you can ask for a letter from a medical doctor who can establish the disability and show the need however you can't go any further than that you can't ask for more how for record for access to more medical records the housing provider cannot make assumptions about any species or breed, um, which I know is something in kind of earlier stages of this, there were more concerns about um, some of the dog breeds that fairly or unfairly um, are sometimes can be concerned to be a more violent or more likely um, harmful breed. <coughs> it also isn't just a limited, a limited to a dog under the emotional support animal. So we've all seen the stories about the um, the turkey on the airplane or the ferret on the airplane. You probably have stories yourselves about the bunnies and um, cats and all of the emotional support animals that, that people bring. But you can't, you can't, that is not a part of the determining process. Um, but however, the housing provider can make a determination whether the animal poses a direct threat of harm or would cause property damage. 
So if it's immediately obvious that the animal isn't housebroken, um, or if a, you know a wild animal that otherwise wouldn't be allowed as a pet can also be immediately dismissed. Um, then there are four factors according to HUD that you would need to go through and in order to, to reject, your, the housing provider must demonstrate. Um, first, that granting the request would impose an undue financial and administrative burden. Um, for example, if one person was coming in with an animal and everybody else said, well, then I'm not living there. That's a balance that you can take from a, a financial perspective. You couldn't, um, you wouldn't be able to house that one member in lieu of housing all of the others to, to, pay, the, to pay the rent. If the request would fundamentally alter the essential nature of the housing provider's operations, um, if you can demonstrate that the specific assistance, assistance animal in question would pose a direct threat to the health or safety of others, um, despite reasonable accommodations, um, again, they are not, they don't give very much guidance on how to do it. And so I'm looking forward to Kat and Lucy and Ashley to see if they've kind of hit on some um, good ways to determine how you balance that um, with one member to another, such as allergies or, or real intense, intense fears um, of animals that another member could have. Um, and then also if the request would result in significant physical damage. So again, if there was an animal that chewed incessantly um, and damaged property or was not house, house trained properly, um, if, so if the member wasn't properly caring for the animal, um, that then animal to, to soil, the furniture, the carpet, those would all be um, reasons why that would be impossible to accommodate the animal. So just like with the service animals, there's a link there as well for the HUD, um, for the HUD site for some more information there. All right, so that was just kind of a brief introduction. I don't know if there are any questions um, from Sarah, not yet. So I'm gonna turn it over to Tri-Delta and let them kind of talk through their process um, with the emotional support animals. Great, thanks, Astacia. So hi, everyone. I'm Ashley Coleman, and I serve as our Senior Director of Housing Services for Tri-Delta. And with me today, I've asked Lucy Moreland, who's our Senior Director of Chapter Operations, to join me. We kind of work side by side through a lot of these scenarios that come up. Um, because our members need a little extra support. So what you've already seen presented by Stacia pretty much aligns to where and how we landed on our policies and procedures. Um, I think this has been a great conversation that's been going on very heavily for uh, the past few years. I remember a couple of um, forums ago, like this was one of the hottest topics. And um, I don't think it's really died down. But I do think that um, we have gotten to a place where at least we feel we have some structure and guidance that we can provide, but it's still not an easy thing to navigate. I feel like every single case that comes up because we do treat them individually has a lot of gray that is tied to it. So um, while we will share our process and procedures, I will say it is still not surefire. So um, we are always learning from each other and we look forward to even hearing what you guys are doing. So. Um, for Tri-Delta, we do have a collegiate chapter policy um, that says no pets allowed in our facilities. That's pretty standard, um, unless there has been a request for an accommodation that has been approved through our um, accommodation process. And our accommodation process, we started our conversations with our legal team um, to kind of really define out what we've already talked about, emotional support animal versus uh, service. 
And we ended up landing on calling ours assistance animal across the board. We felt like that just covered both bases without creating too much confusion um, and being inclusive then to almost everyone. So it's a little bit easier for the chapter officers to navigate when they see it as one thing versus trying to determine if it's an emotional support versus a service. Um, instead, they're just dealing with one form, one presentation from that member, um, and it seems to make them feel a little bit more at ease. So with that said, we have a, a document that any member um, who wants to come forward, they would have to complete. Um, it is the request form. Um, it is a very simple form that if this is a true need and request, they should be able to fill out without any questions or concerns. Um, but basically in that form, they are being asked the same questions the station has shared. Do you have a disability with physical or mental impairment um, that limits you to one or more uh, major life activities? Then the same thing, do you have a disability related to it that they do this task or performance for you? Um, so again, those questions are asked and immediately to Estacia's point, if any of those come back as no, that's really where our conversation as well would end. But if it does come back, yes, um, there are some additional things. Um, we set it up to where our executive committees um, which and or any other designated committee within our chapter officer structure is um, named within the chapter policies manages this. I think the one big thing that Tri-Delta really landed on is that this is a chapter decision and process to go through, but with support from their chapter advisors and house corporation. But our house corporations cannot step in and say, nope, no assistance animals, we can't allow that. That's a cat or that's a gecko or a lizard I saw in the chat. Like they really don't have a say in it. The women do have to put it through the appropriate accommodation request process. Um, but they, we do encourage them to have those conversations with their house corporation leaders and with their advisors to make sure that they're really thinking it through. Because I think the most challenging part, and I think Lucy would probably agree, is determining what, if any, accommodation can be made and what is that accommodation. I think that's where our members really do struggle because that, I mean, even in the world of HR, sometimes that's a hard thing to determine just for a general employee seeking the accommodation. So I think that's where we start to see our um, frustration and a lot of um, confusion and back and forth, regardless of what's on paper or what's written out in a process or procedure. Um, but once that um, member has completed that request and on that request form, we do go ahead and ask up front, like, what is the type of animal, um, the breed? Is it neutered? Has it had its rabies shot? They sign that. They turn that into the committee. It's then the committee's responsibility to have that conversation and make those determinations of, yes, is it a parent? Like, obviously, this is a, a definite need. Or to Estacia's point, do we need to request for a letter, um, a medical letter from their doctor just because we can't, it's not apparent that they have this disability or need for this animal. Um, from there then, there are some other conversations we do encourage our members to do before they just grant an accommodation. Um, for instance, if it's a resident, um, there could be, if they already have a roommate, I think it's important that the committee has confidential conversations with that roommate to make sure they're comfortable if they need to relocate that individual. Or just in general, they'll put out a general message to residents saying we've had a member request, they keep it confidential of who it is, why it is, and just ask, you know, would someone have any issues with a dog or whatnot, you have until such and such date to come forward with any of your own personal circumstances and documentation that can be taken into consideration as this committee tries to determine the accommodation. 
Um, Estacia's right. Like allergies are probably the hardest thing to navigate. And we just went through this at a location that the assistance animal was a cat and a lot of cat allergies. But um, what we learned from legal, um, we had um, the member's attorney as well as our own attorney kind of navigate this one for us because there were some other things going on. But what we learned is because the allergy levels um, could be managed by just taking an over-the-counter medicine, it was not enough to, even though, you know, maybe six people came forward, it wasn't enough to um, say we, an accommodation could not be made for that assistance animal. So um, it's really important that just as much as you're evaluating what the um, members' needs are that's uh, requesting accommodation, but that they're also asking for some information that could really um, help make sure that documentation is in place should that accommodation be denied. Um, we learned that, you know, if that member is denied an accommodation and it's there's no track record of documentation that the committee did their homework, they, you know, have all of this on file to really back up their decision, it can really come back and um, hurt the chapter from a legal standpoint. Um, so if the accommodation is identified, the accommodation has um, been granted. Um, and this could be, we look at accommodations and make suggestions for members of like, maybe it's they get a single room, right? That's perhaps close to a stairwell to, for easy access in and out of the facility for the animal to be able to use the outdoor designated uh, restroom area. Um, if it's a cat, that also makes it easier for the, if they need to take out, you know, the cat box stuff, they can take it to an exterior designated trash bin. So all of this stuff is really mapped out. Um, and then um, from there, it, when it's done, we have them, if they're a resident, they do have to sign an addendum to their license agreement. And again, we don't ask for security deposits on their animals, but it is very, very clearly written in the addendum that if the animal starts to pose a threat or if there's damages, um, you know, the member would be held to those damages accordingly. And if there was some sort of threat um, for safety or security of the members um, at the facility, then we could um, null the agreement and the animal would have to be removed immediately and the accommodation would then be uh, revoked. Um, I think also what we learned in this process are non-residents, not to forget them because we do have some non-residents that have come forward asking if they can bring their assistance animal into the facility when they're there for chapter meetings or officer meetings and things like that. And so we've been working with our legal team to just kind of create the flip side of that, of what would be sort of those same held to expectations for a non-resident with an assistance animal. If an accommodation was granted, they could bring it in while they're on the premises for any sort of chapter event. And then what would be a reason of why that accommodation may be revoked? Um, very similar we just take out the residential side of it. Um, and then finally, I think one thing that's um, kind of important to note too is this can happen at any time. So we had a lot of questions come up from our collegiate members of, oh, well, it's when we sign license agreement, we let them request. Well, we all know that things happen to our members at any time of the year. And while someone may not be in need of an assistance animal today, something could happen in their life where tomorrow that's a different story. And so we're really working with our members to help them understand that this can, this request can come at any time. Um, I think from our advisors and like house corporation, the, the thing is, what if the zoo starts coming? What if we, if we allow one accommodation, everyone's going to want one. Well, at some point, yes, you know, you might have multiple accommodation requests, but when you have that many requests then you do have to kind of determine, right. You can have a conversation of, unfortunately, we can't meet your accommodation at this time. 
but we can release you from your housing agreement to support you, right, in your need at this moment. We encourage you, though, you know, to continue to come back and request an accommodation um, as we transition residents. Um, and then that might help bring in a member who didn't have an opportunity to live in the facility who does have a need with an assistance animal but maybe the accommodation was that they were released from their housing agreement because unfortunately maybe there was already multiple accommodations made to allow members into the residency that had already requested so um that's kind of high level for tri delta lucy do you have anything you would add because i know you see more of like <laughs> the disciplinary membery conversations versus necessarily the logistics of it yeah, no, I think you hit on it on everything. I would just continue to reiterate the importance of um, that documentation piece, like being really clear with here's what our expectations are. And yes, you're kind of the deal breakers. And then when problems do arise or if you get complaints in that, you know, documenting it each time, making sure that you're talking about it, because yes, in these situations, whenever it does come to removing a resident or the animal in that, we always have lawyers involved in everything. And, and that's the first thing that they're asking for is, well, where's the documentation that you said this, or, you know, is this hearsay and everything? And so that's been, as I think all of you know, getting our chapters to document anything can be <laughs> struggling moments at times. And so um, I think that is the biggest thing that we've been working with our, our chapters on. And we also encourage all of them, as Ashley said, reach out to your volunteers, reach out to, you know, your house corporations as soon as this comes up. But we also ask that they let us know uh -huh. at the office. Um, so then that way, again, we can just kind of help. Okay, do you understand the process? Do you have any questions before you go into this? And then again, once they kind of reach that roadblock, because it is new for everybody, it usually yeah. does get elevated up to us. And so we, we've been pretty clear with our chapters of this is going to be case by case. There is no exact, you know, mapping out for it. So please contact us. We will walk you through it and we'll deal with it together. Um, and that's just kind of been how we've had to do all of them. Because like Ashley said, every single one of them, there's been some little, <laughs> something. Twist, little something that we had to navigate. And it's like, okay, yep, never dealt with that. Let's add that to our list and our FAQs. Um, so yeah, it's all just a learning process. And I think getting our students and our volunteers comfortable with that you know, it, it's still just a road because they like that. No, we just need the yes, no, and like, let us check it off. And this is very much not one of those situations. Estacia, I saw your question and I will say your question in the chat was, has anyone found that this process has any effect on filling the house, more people willing to live in or excuse? I, what I think is interesting is, you know, we're really challenging our uh, chapters to be more inclusive and, and kind of approaching this more of like, hey, we want to help you kind of mindset versus a roadblock of not letting someone into a facility. And so I think what our members are finding is when they come forward and say, oh, I can't live in. I need I have my emotional support. And, oh, well, actually, you could live in potentially. Let's talk about that. Let's look if we can make an accommodation. And I think what they're finding is that they're actually seeing more and more opportunities come up where they can actually get the experience of living in, even with the emotional um, um, support animals. I know that's what a lot of people reference it as. Um, and I think it's taken them a little step back. They're like, oh, oh, okay. I'm not going to be released from my housing because, oh, they actually can't accommodate. Oh, okay. I'm living in. <laughs> so it's kind of, it, it's gone both ways. We've seen a lot of try to get out from it because they have it, but then we've also seen a lot of positive response that we are trying to really help members have that experience living in and really looking through that accommodation process. Great, thank you. I appreciate um, that whole process. It's been so well thought out and the answer to that question too, which just occurred to me just 
as you were talking, I know that's always um, that's always a concern at Housing Forum is keeping houses full. So how, whatever we can do um, to help that and maintain the experience of members. Next, I'm going to turn it over to Kat Cobb with Gamma Phi Beta, um, who I know has also handled a lot of these, um, and I thank her so much for joining us. Hi, yeah, I'm Kat Cobb. I'm the Chief Legal Officer with Gamma Phi Beta. Um, I helped create this process three years ago. Um, I don't actually have to get involved in it very much anymore, which is delightful, but I'm also currently the interim director of the FMC, so I said I would participate in this today and give Joel a day off. So. Um, Anyway, so for Gamify Beta, a request for an ESA is a request for an accommodation under the housing agreement. Um, and it's managed either by staff of the FMC, if it's an FMC facility, or by a local house corporation board. Um, and for all accommodations, whether it's an ESA, an exemption from a meal plan, or a single room, we use an individualized interactive process and a very similar um, set of forms for the whole process. So our once we receive a request for an ESA, um, we have a conversation with that resident and ask those questions, you know, that everyone is asking essentially. And then we send them a form. Um, and this form is for the required medical documentation from a physician, psychiatrist, social worker, or other mental health professional that the animal provides support that alleviates at least one of the identified symptoms or effects of the existing disability. Once we receive this completed form, we just check that it was completed accurately. Um, and then we review the recommendation of the healthcare provider. A lot of questions I get is if we debate the validity of the opinion, and we do not. Uh, we are not medical professionals. And so we just accept the opinion as it was presented to us. Um, once we've got that form um, completed, we start talking to the resident about the type of ESA. Um, and so we can start understanding if we can make an accommodation. Additionally, at that time, we'll share the sample guidelines for an ESA in a facility. So a resident can have a better understanding um, what it might be like. These guidelines cover animal behaviors, documentation required and the resident's responsibilities. And so once we know whether we have a dog, a cat, a bunny, or a lizard coming, it helps us determine if we need to seek allergies from the other residents. And so if we do, we have a, just a documentation form for residents and they will fill out allergies. We also collect this for food allergies for our chef company, as well as any other potential allergies. Um, and so once that process starts, I think that's when we start evaluating our facility to determine if we have um, if we have allergies, how are we going to be able to accommodate both people? Are we going to be able to accommodate both people? Things we really look at are access in and out of the facility. Is there an access that a person with an ESA can use so that another access can be used with people with allergies? Also evaluation of laundry room and common area spaces and limitations there as well. Um, are all things that we start asking. The other thing we also actually often have is multiple ESAs in a facility. And so we have to evaluate if there's any threat to the bunny by the dog that will be in the facility, um, as well as if the dogs can cohabitate. And sometimes that means we're putting someone up on a third floor and someone else down on the first floor, just to help create space so everyone can feel comfortable in their living environment. Um, 
Once we get through that process, we actually create specific guidelines for that resident in that ESA and we schedule a phone call. Um, and we talk through all of the guidelines, what we've identified as potential issues, what we've identified as concerns and what our best solution is at that point in time. Um, and this is this is kind of the, where we're really getting into the interactive process with them. We're asking if it's okay. We're asking if it meets their need. We're asking if they have other suggestions as well. Um, and once those guidelines are complete, we then have them actually sign off an agreement on those guidelines that they understand them, that they agreed to them, that they helped in the process in creating them. And then at that point in time, we make sure we notify our local volunteers as well as leadership in the facility that there will be an animal living in a facility. The facility. Um, we share the side guide, the signed guidelines with the facility director, as she will most likely be the person who will identify if the guidelines aren't being followed and let the house corporation or FMC staff know if there are any concerns. Um, and then prior to move in, we make sure that we've collected all the necessary veterinary records, if there's any local county uh, registration records that need to be collected. And the last thing we also do based on experiences, we have now collected an emergency contact for the ESA in case the resident or owner is unavailable or something happens to them and we need to know who the next best contact is for their ESA. There we go. Thank you so much, Kat. I appreciate, there we go. Can everybody hear me? I so appreciate um, you sharing that process. And I think you can see that there are just slight differences. I saw a lot of nodding from um, Lucy and Ashley when Kat was talking and also so, so same thing when um, Ashley and Lucy were talking that the, they're similar, but not exactly the same. There is definitely some room for each organization to consider how, how they want to um, move forward with an emotional support animal. I want to stop. I don't think we've had any questions, um, but I don't know if anybody wanted to jump in with anything or any questions for our panelists. I know I have, go ahead, Ashley. I was going to share one thing that came up, I think was a concern from, it actually came from a group of our house corporation volunteers. This is when we had a cat, a uh, request as the assistance animal of like oh my gosh we can't have a cat just roaming the house oh lord I mean it was like the roof is on fire kind of fear that there was just going to be this cat living throughout the home and one thing we did confirm and, and it was in um like to cat's point in those specific requirements for that individual case the cat if the cat left the resident's room the cat had to be on a leash and that was because the member to she wanted her sisters to feel comfortable we couldn't have necessarily like fully mandated that the animal only remain in her room like that's illegal the animal should have be able to leave the member's room but if it does it does have to be on a leash um and and or in that person's control i think a service dog um like to your point station usually those are already more controlled and more you know trained cats aren't trained cats aren't going to just sit in your lap and be like yes i'll sit here perfectly and i mean look at lucy's cats usually that run around in her zoom calls so um, that was one thing that came up. And I think it's important for people to understand, like it really aren't, you're not going to see these animals running amok. Um, they do have to remain under the control of the owner. Um, and that may look a little bit different depending on the animal itself. But um, I think that was one of our biggest fears coming from our volunteers was that we were just literally going to have a petting zoo running wild inside. And it, it, that's really not how it ends up flushing out once you look at it from the bigger picture. Yeah, good, good advice. Thank you. 
have you had? And I didn't warn the panelists of this question, so and I should, probably should have. So, if there, have you had any states or areas where you found it's become more of an issue, or is it still pretty balanced all out, all over? I don't. No, no states are sticking out really in my mind, but I do feel like we've gotten more requests. Um, just from our like West Coast chapters, like Colorado, Washington, and California are the ones sticking out most in my mind that we've had the most interaction working with those chapters, um, definitely more so than the Southeast or the Northeast. Um, and then I think the second largest area is maybe the Midwestern area a little bit further North. Okay, that makes sense. Is any, I see a question, um, is if anyone is capturing the number of accommodations like for the enterprise like those do you do they all actually come up under you so you can keep track of how many or do some come to you and some are just completely handled on the local level I think we've asked that they at least come to us that does not mean that they are sometimes we find out after the fact like oh they well hope they follow the process because of the legality fallout right so we have just within the last, we rolled out our new assistance animal procedures. It's only been about a year, maybe a year and a half. So still very green. And even since we rolled it out, we're finding those grays that require some adaption to it. Um, I think that would be a great thing to track um, just to get an understanding of how it is impacting the living experience. Um, and if it's truly as big of an issue, and I say issue, not in a negative way, but like, um, I think that there's an assumption that there's all these people seeking to bring in an emotional or assistance or service animal. And that really may not be the case. Um, you know, and I think, and, and Kat, yours may be different because it sounds like y'all go through you regardless. Um, um, but for us, sometimes we have a few that make those decisions on their own and sometimes they're not handled correctly. So we end up backpedaling um, on their behalf. But I do think that would be a great goal for um, us to try to capture as NPC just to kind of see like what are we seeing out there and is this really as big of a trend as we think it is or is it just feel that way because it's still so new um, so I would be interested in that data but I could say I don't think Tridelta right now could tell you exactly who all where all has an assistance animal. Mm -hmm. We're similar I mean we track all of them in FMC facilities and then we ask people to share with us if they're doing it for locals. Um, I can say this year, we have the least number of uh, requests for ESAs that we've had in the last five years. Um, and so it is not as big this year for us. Um, I would say overall, I could, from communications, I think the max we've ever had across the enterprise is like 12. So it's not that large. We usually have about six in the FMC facilities and that's 14 facilities. And this year we have two and they're in the same facility. So um, it's not that large of a request. I saw that Sarah asked about safeguards in place for protecting medical documentation. So for the FMC staff, we have a secure link that is sent to the, um, the resident requesting and they are supposed to submit everything through that secured link. So it is protected. It's kept in a confidential section on the cloud that only the FMC manager who is facilitating um, the review of the ESA has access to. And so that's how we're able to do it. We share recommendations for our local boards about how to keep them confidential um, as well. They are able in some ways in local, like they can collect 
them in person actually and then we recommend they shred them and try not to do it via email as a local board and so those are some of our like real analog recommendations to keep documents confidential we also have to do a lot of coaching with our volunteers i think our women our collegians are more respectful about individuals personal circumstances but what we have found is when an advisor or a member of the house corporation is brought into the conversations, even if it's just to serve kind of as a counterpart to make sure they're following the procedures correctly is, well, I just don't know. Cause I see that woman out all the time. And I just think that she's doing, and I'm like, mm-mm, mm-mm. so we're having to have a lot of conversations with the adults, right. Of like, you cannot, these are different issues, separate circumstances, like and it's hard for them because I think this is definitely a newer concept for a lot of our alumni um, of why would our members all need these animals. Um, and so I think that's also important to, as we continue down this path with Tri-Delta is not just training our, our collegiate members, but some really good understanding FAQ talking points for the alumni who are there in supportive roles to help build that um, understanding of confidentiality, non-judgment, and all of the above, because I think sometimes they can muddy it versus help it. And um, it's our job to kind of make sure that we're giving them the same resources and tools to bring them along the way. Absolutely, thank you for that, Ashley. And just as a reminder, as we certainly recommend strongly that you have all of those safeguards in place and that you safeguard members' information that they want to keep confidential, but you are not responsible for HIPAA or FERPA because you're not a government entity. So do the best you can. Um, and of course, as we, we say on other occasions, you never know who's going to get upset at you and, and why and how they're going to go about it. So we do want you to keep those safeguarded, um, but you're not responsible for those government um, requirements. We're gonna, I'm gonna share my screen again. And um, just for a few final thoughts, um, and which I think has come out, come through loud and clear. And I'm really grateful again to, to Tridel and um, Gamify Beta for sharing their process, but it's important to have a process. Um, and we feel it's important that that process is defined and guided by the international organization to determine all requests for emotional support animals and service animals, just because there is there are so many legal requirements and make sure that you are um, providing that documentation, that support. And again, for like, as, um, Ashley mentioned every chapter has a different level and sophistication of support um, from their advisory panel so to make sure that they feel comfortable and supported through the process. Um, all cases must be determined on a case by case basis. Um, it's even though I think you could probably you can make the decision we're not FHA and we're not ADA. Um, you probably should have some process in place, even if it's a fairly cursory process, um, especially for those that are service animals, for example, um, rather than even the emotional support, which can be um, a little squishier to determine. Federal, state, and local laws may all play a part in the, require in the requirements for your location. And with that, your college or university may be able to provide valuable resources when you're looking into these, especially in an area that you haven't worked before. And I know we've had some um, questions from local house corporations that, and they think that when I've said this, it means that they should go to the university and ask the university to decide for them what they should do. And that is not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you should ask the university to, to um, make your determination for your private house, unless of course the university owns it. But 
as a larger entity that has likely gone through this before, they should also have a process in place um, and should be knowledgeable of the local um, laws that may apply. Finally, um, there are no exclusions in the insurance policy that would affect coverage. So the insurance would respond if there would be a claim involving an emotional support or service animal. Some of you may have homeowners policy or, or have seen homeowners policies that will specifically um, exclude coverage for, again, some of those breeds that fairly or unfairly have been determined to be more dangerous to people. And that does not exist in the sorority policy. Um, there's really no mention of it. So if um, we, as always, recommend that you make the best decisions um, for your organization based on your own risk tolerance. Um, but then we hope that you know that we will back you up in those decisions should something happen. We have seen claims um, for animals that were determined to be emotional support animals. Um, and luckily nothing has turned out to be um, anything that was, that was too big or made an impact on the organization, but um, there aren't exclusions that would affect it. So with that, I think we've concluded our talk specifically about emotional support animals, um, unless there are any more. Stacia, um, there was one more question in there. I just lost it from Debbie, which I think you sort of just answered from a risk or risk management slash insurance perspective. If an emotional support animal does damage to someone's personal property or physical injury, how is that handled? Oh, that is a good question. So I think an, another individual personal property, because we don't, your policies don't protect any of the members' personal property, they should really um, need to go to their own homeowner's policies for the coverage of that personal property. I guess they could make a claim against your general liability policy that says that you were negligent, it's your fault as an organization. Um, I don't think that we've seen that happen yet. There's no reason to think that it would be excluded. It would probably be pretty minor. Hopefully, you know, members hopefully don't have anything of too high value that um, an animal could get to. I'm also happy to chime in on our guidelines. We we tell the members specifically with the ESA that we won't be responsible for any damage, whether personal or physical, and that we won't indemnify and we won't do anything and it's their responsibility. And we do require them to have renter's insurance, which usually will cover any sort of um, dog bite um, that happens um, as well to help offset any of that. That's um, a good, good policy. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, and then um, some Lucy made the point that to be prepared to um, for students to try to go through their campus disability offices. Just, I mean, you know, we all know that if they don't like the answer from mom, they go and ask dad and um, this is that situation. So um, should, that's happening more and more. Are you finding, are they just, is the disability office trying to challenge you or does it just depend on the situation or are they going along with your answer? Um, uh, mixture of both. Uh, and again, that's where I go back to the documentation piece. Cause then once we can go in there and show them, here's our reasonable accommodations, here's why we can't or why we can. Um, we still have a lot of them, but yeah, they don't understand the difference between a sorority property house and how that does and doesn't fall into the requirements that they're used to dealing with on the campus with what they have to do. And so we have a lot of education that we do for them. Um, but more times than not, they are, because that's their job. They're advocating on behalf of the student. Um, we and we have had a couple that have, I think in our opinion, like greatly overstepped and tried to dictate for us um, to the fact that I don't think we're the only ones, like, I'm sorry, Ohio State University that threatened, you know, if you don't make accommodations, 
your chapter recognition, you know, is kind of on the line with that because you're discriminating against students and that. Um, and so we have had a couple instances with that that have been a lot of working around trying to do that. Um, we handled it just by trying to work with them on that. Um, but I know of another group that put their foot down and was like, you can go ahead and try this and then we're going to get our legal involved. Thanks for joining us for um, Real Talk. We want to hear from you. Yeah, if you have feedback, yes, comments, like or questions, send us an email yes, at realtalk at mjsorority.com. Visit our website, mjsorority.com, to learn more about who we are, what we do, and explore our huge resources. Check out the show notes from today's episode to dig a little deeper into the topics we discuss. This has been Real Talk with MJ Sorority. Be smart, be safe, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks so much for your time today. Again, thanks to Kat and thanks to Ashley and Lucy. Um, for sharing their expertise with us. And we look forward to connecting with all of you again very soon. Thanks so much for your time today.